For so many modern-driven women, life is about being more than one thing. We're multidimensional, and so are our conversations. We carry multiple identities. We can be both mother and artist, both attorney and entrepreneur, both clinician and CEO, both humble and proud. Life for women like us is about both, about all of the above. It's about the and. Our stories are the stories of so many of you. We wanted the freedom and flexibility to live life on our own terms, and we felt the pull to be more present with our families. But we still felt drawn to contribute, to build, and to create. And we wanted to establish financial security for ourselves and our children. For us, that looked like founding software companies, but for you, that may look different. Our mission is to help other smart, conscious women build and grow businesses on the internet. Starting up online can be overwhelming and isolating, but it doesn't need to be. Join us for honest conversations about what it really means to grow an online business that aligns with your values and adds something meaningful to the world. I'm Sandy Connery. And I'm Jenny Barcelos. And you're listening to the And She Spoke podcast. In our business, we're big fans of financial literacy and accountability. Knowing your numbers is an essential aspect of building a successful business and inherent responsibility for any entrepreneur. We also believe that what you focus on grows. So pay attention to your money. How do we stay up to speed on our numbers? We use Bench for our bookkeeping. It's simple, elegant, and saves us so many hours that would otherwise be spent neck deep in receipts on the other side of a spreadsheet. Each month, our transactions are automatically imported into Bench and we get on-demand financial reports. We even enjoy opening up our profit and loss statement to review each month. And when tax time comes around, we are up to date and ready to go. And this is what financial empowerment feels like. Head on over to anshe.co slash bench to save 20% off your Bench accounting plan for the first six months. Welcome to the Anshi Spoke podcast. Today we interviewed Eleanor Beaton. Eleanor is the founder of Safi Media, a media and education company. She is on a mission to advance gender equity globally by doubling the number of female founders who scale past seven figures by unleashing the power of women's voices and expertise. We had so much fun talking to her today. We simply chatted about the limiting beliefs between male and female founders and the systemic differences between what's available to support male and female founders. We talked about the role in social media in each of our businesses, and she discusses how she's slowly moving away from paid social media ads. Eleanor is a true visionary for female entrepreneurs, and we can all learn so much from her and her way of thinking. So check her out. She's got a great podcast called Power and Presence and Position. I absolutely love today's conversation, and I know you will too. So here's Eleanor. Well, welcome, Eleanor, to the show. We are so happy to have you. I am so privileged to be here with you both. I'm just laughing because this is take two, as we know, and it's just it's making me giggle. Anyway, okay, Eleanor, we want to know who you are. Give us a little bit of your background, where you live, and what you do. So I am a recovering journalist, a recovering business journalist. I'm an entrepreneur, a mother to two sons, a wife. I live on the east coast of Canada in the countryside outside a small town called Windsor, Nova Scotia, which is the birthplace of hockey, the contested birthplace of hockey, and home of the giant pumpkins. 
as well as headquarters of Safi Media. That's my company. So Safi Media, we are a media and learning company, and we are on a mission to double the number of women entrepreneurs who scale past seven figures in annual revenues. And we do that through paid and free education and learning and coaching programming. So I would love to know, how did you get there to that mission? Like what happened to you? What did you experience? What did you witness? The specificity of that mission came to me several years ago. So I've been in the field of women's leadership development for some time and continued through the work to sort of ask myself, where can I have the most impact? How can I narrow down and niche down to a place where I'm working with sort of the smallest viable market and having the biggest, the biggest viable impact? So I decided to really focus on working with women entrepreneurs, but I've been in the area for some time. Time, running coaching and training programs and my podcast and you know producing tons of different media reports all of that and I started to get more and more curious about how to best deliver entrepreneurship education how what are the needs of women entrepreneurs how can we provide and show up just in time is that the way that we do that so it was really sort of an act of exploration and of course, you know, at this time, Netflix was Netflix, you know, and it was growing and growing. And I was intrigued at how it was continuously serving up exactly what I wanted when I wanted. And I thought, you know, how can I, is there a way to be able to offer this? So I started to sort of scour my network, talk to the technical people who are inside my network started to pull together a loose plan for what an app might be if I fundamentally altered my business and transformed it from an education company into a technology company, right? So this was sort of the path I was going down. And I started attending more and more technical conferences and conferences where there were developers and tech people and funders and so on. And really saw firsthand that it was a total bro down. So two things I saw, number one, this is a complete bro down and I love the bros. It's fine, but wow. You know, and the second thing that I learned is there is so much money and opportunity here and the way it's presented and the conversations that they're having, we need to be a part of this. But according to them, the businesses that myself and so many of our clients run are completely meaningless because they can't scale the way they define the, life, the lifestyle business. That's right. The oh, lifestyle yeah. business, which is basically kind of an insult. That's when I started realizing, no, we need to shift the narrative of what scaling looks like, of what success looks like. Like we have to take this into our hands. We can do it, but it's going to look different. But I was just basically tired of Silicon Valley hijacking the narrative of growth and the impact that that has, I think, on women entrepreneurs. That's where it well, came from. <laughs> rage, I, you know, just straight up rage. That That's right. I mean, that's so refreshing to hear another entrepreneur talk about because that's, I mean, we, this exact same words could have come out of my mouth. The yeah. entire, the entire answer to that question is basically exactly the same for us. And I'm wondering how do you best push back against it? So I have developed certain things that I say in response to the tech bro culture and people asking us about our growth strategy, but how do you respond when someone does insinuate that the kinds of entrepreneurs you work with run lifestyle businesses, for example? 
Well, it's interesting because it's never been as overt as that. But what I will typically do is try to actually take one of my MO approaches from the very beginning, which is try to figure out who are the players here? How can I engage in conversation with them? And are, is there a dialogue that we can have? So I'll give you an example. I can remember when I realized this woman that I knew was actually very instrumental in a fairly significant technology fund or, you know, VC fund for tech companies. So I booked a call with her and we had a Zoom conversation and I was talking to her about how she defines scale, how she looks at and evaluates return on investment. And sure, this fund might not be investing in so many of the companies that women run, but are there other opportunities to take a look at other service-based businesses or traditional style of businesses that would never have access to this type of venture capital, would never want or need it, but do require access to the networks? that a lot of tech entrepreneurs have access to that the rest of these companies do not. So a lot of them are conversations, but there's also been other ways. So for instance, I'm currently on the board of two venture capital type organizations here on the East Coast. And it's really simply about being a voice, being a presence around the table, asking questions, making points. <laughs> so it's, it's a little bit like the power of like a drop of water, just boom, boom, boom. You know, that's my style of disruption, I would say. Okay. So you talked about needing to work with about 200,000 North American women-owned businesses in order to reach your stated goal. And I'm just yeah. wondering, so what is the makeup? Like wh what kind of businesses are we talking about? So they're not mostly tech companies. So what are they? Yeah. So when you look at the breakdown of women-owned businesses, they are primarily going to be service-based businesses. And the types of businesses that, that we in particular look at would be businesses where women are packaging up intellectual property. And so they're packaging up intellectual property into, it could be potentially, and I know this is like a big part of what you facilitate through your company is sort of online digital products. It could be through processes. So architecture companies, law firms, accounting companies, design firms. So they're either monetizing through productizing or packaging intellectual property or scaling the delivery of their sort of service-based deliverables through systems and processes that are probably proprietary to them as well as their, the power of their brand. So these are typically the kinds of companies where we know in the knowledge economy, the bar to entry for these companies is very low, but the ability to kind of scale can be challenging if you don't have some of the right fundamental pieces in place. Is that that challenge to scale? Is that mindset and the cultural like internalization of what we've learned as women or are there systemic in the system like things that stop us? It's so fascinating because I think it's both. So typically, whenever we're dealing with a problem that a woman is having, our go-to is, is, is that it's internal and psychological, <laughs> you know, which is a human condition, right? And I don't, I mean, I'm a coach. A big part of what we do is look at those issues that impact everybody. But there are major systemic problems that I think are happening I'll give you an example. I can remember a few years ago, I was at 
I went to two conferences and they were both supplier diversity conferences. So one supplier diversity conference was a national organization that really focused on minorities, black indigenous people of color. The other organization focused on women specifically. And the, both of these organizations were talking about how small minority-owned companies or women-owned companies can tap into the enormous purse strings of large corporates. You know, very often in the United States, there are legislative teeth that require them to do business with small and minority-owned and women-owned companies. In Canada, it's more of a guideline. So I'm at these two conferences literally back to back. And the caliber of what was being presented at each of these conferences, and you know, this was four years ago, but still, the caliber of what was being presented at these two different conferences was stunning. So literally at the women's conference, and there were women who were running very successful businesses in the audience, one of the sort of key pieces of advice emerging from one of the information sessions was make sure that you're addressing your pitches and your RFPs to the correct person. Meanwhile, you know, at the other conference, which was for men and women, the caliber of what was being discussed was much higher. They were talking about trends in procurement. They were talking about really effective ways to make sure that you are, you are understanding, finding the correct people to build your pipeline with, how you build relationships with them, what the makeup of your team needs to look like, just a very different caliber of conversation. And I was pretty frustrated. And I think what that speaks to is more of a systematic or a systemic problem where as women, we're not getting access to the networks and to the types of conversation and that, you know, that's what we're not really getting access to. And instead, it's more like have a bubble bath and work on yourself. So that, it's fascinating. And to me, I am a personal development junkie. Like I, I love that stuff, but it's, it's just part of the story. And I realized at these conferences that I was going to, wow, there's this whole level of conversation of idea sharing. I mean, they, they would benefit from, from the work on yourself, <laughs> right? They would really benefit from that. So we need to talk to each other more. Yeah. Yeah, totally. That's so interesting. I mean, we have come to that same conclusion in a different way. And so the work that we do with our clients is an interplay of both how to deal with technical or structural issues and then also how to deal with mindset issues mm. when you're working on those, those tactical or technical strategies. Because I, I think that's right. I think that that's a holistic view of business. And yeah. we're all, we're, we all need to be able to do both in order to find a higher level of success or achieve greater things. I mean, that's, that's just become really apparent to us. And, and, and also too, in our own work as entrepreneurs, like we have coaches on the technical side of what we do and mentors. And then we also have the sort of personal developments, leadership style kind of coaches. And as we grow as leaders, we're recognizing that both of those are really equally important. So I think that's, that's really amazing that you're taking that and spreading that to so many people and you have this mission. How do you find 
women who are looking for this message? Like, where do you go out and find these people? Because we serve such a small niche. It's really mm. easy for us to find our people, but you're talking about basically like all of the, all of these small all businesses the across all of these sectors. And so how, how do women find you or how do you find your people? Oh, that's such a good question. So Essentially, you know, what we're talking about is, is like a marketing function, you know, it's like this whole function of marketing. And so whenever I think about that, I'm always thinking about sort of the three forms of persuasive communication. So there's pathos, which is really all about character. There's ethos, which is all about sort of emotion and persuasion that way. And then there's logos, which is all about sort of logic. We need all three. So when you have a larger or a broader area, you know, if you're appealing to a broader group of people, each one of those needs to be super strong, especially character. So that's where I have found that having a very strong point of view, being very clear, being okay, being galvanizing has been really important. And that's something that I've learned over time. And I'll give you an example. Like, I know from all of my own sort of creative self-education that if you're not sort of one or two in your area, your life is a lot harder. So if you're not kind of at the top of mind in your specific corner of the market, life is much harder than it needs to be. So what I always, I used to hear that and get quite discouraged because I would think, well, my company is essentially a learning and coaching company. It's a very large market. How could I ever be number one or number two? But I loved what I did. So I just continued <laughs> blithely moving ahead. And the more, you know, as I realized that it became, if you have a, a bit of a broader market, the way that you niche down is through embracing the power of pathos. So character, you know, brand, being okay, being galvanizing, standing for something, you know, having a strong voice. In the beginning, it's typically going to be the voice of the founder. Over time, that can become the voice of the brand itself. So I think about very specific people. Safi Media actually stands for Self-Actualized Female Innovators. Safis. So these are a category of super influential women, educated, fairly privileged and wealthy, and able to have to exert a large impact on the world if they choose to do so. You know, so we would be Safis <laughs> as an example. So I know that there's a very specific type of Safi that I'm talking, talking to. That's how we have niched down. That's how we've chosen to do it. I love that idea that it's like the character and to be galvanizing. I love that. Since we're on marketing, can you talk to us about your beliefs, your use of social media? And we were listening to Allie Brown a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about the idea of like all of our eggs are in one basket right now, most of us with like Facebook ads. And what if that all falls apart? Like what, what is your backup? Like what is your plan? And if you choose to, I would love to hear the dance and point rant and why you're not doing it on Instagram reels. <laughs> I'm on a bit of a rampage right now. We'll, we'll get Go. into it in Go. a moment. <laughs> get into it in a moment. So this is really interesting. And, and let me, and I will just go off a little bit here. So we always had it. And so we're recording this, you know, at the sort of midway through November post, or it's not even a post COVID economy, but a COVID economy. 
So what I found in the work that I do, both as a coach on the board work that I do and inside my own company, the, one of the biggest impacts that COVID had, especially initially, was that it started to disrupt sales funnels. It just started to disrupt sales funnels. And particularly, so I always had three core sources of lead generation. And so the first was referrals, like networking and referrals. The second was speaking. And then the third was Facebook advertising. So COVID starts and the, a lot of the sort of getting out, speaking, that kind of thing, that side of it is interrupted. Then mm -hmm. I was doing a live stream video. And in that live stream video, I talked about, is it okay to market during a crisis? At which point my entire ad account is promptly shut down. And then because on our ad account manager, we had the phone number from like it was a, we didn't even realize the phone number was for a brick and mortar office that we had, that we had moved out of, you know, six months prior. So all of this is happening. We can't talk to somebody. We're spending thousands with Facebook. We're a good customer, an upstanding client, and they completely shut down our account, the account, the Facebook account that we were using. So it was really, really challenging. It was incredibly frustrating. I totally understood, like they have their policies and they can do what they like and that's totally fine. But that's where we were like, okay, so now we have to really make sure that we are rebuilding our lead generation strategies. We thought we were, we had incredible insurance here and under normal circumstances we would have, but it's time to really relook at how, how we're generating leads. I will tell you it was the best thing that ever happened. So first, and the reason that it was okay for this to happen is that we had cash reserves. So I know this is something that I have heard you talk about, but you know, building up cash reserves gives you a lot of freedom to make strong decisions you know, for the business. And so as I started taking a look at where did I want to be, I, I actually analyzed a couple of things, and this was interesting. Where did we want to be? How did we want to do lead generation in the new economy? And where did the most valuable leads come from? And the reality is our most valuable buyers rarely came from paid traffic. They rarely came from paid traffic. The vast majority of them were high quality referrals who then referred others, you know, from great quality, awesome people. When I say great quality people, I'm, I'm, <laughs> We are all equal, but these are people who, you know, were very much in alignment with me, my brand, our company, all of that good stuff. Yeah. And so that, so we, as we started to kind of relook at how we wanted to do lead generation, there were a few things that I started thinking about. So we are, we are doing in transparency, we are doing some advertising on Facebook, but what I'm looking for as we were able to kind of get that all set up and working again. But for us, as what I started asking myself is where, so we took ourselves off a lot of social media. I shut down a lot of our Facebook groups. Um, we're weaning ourselves off without and trying to, you know, not disrupt things too harshly, you know, but what I'll share is this. I started asking myself, why am I giving so much money to Mark Zuckerberg? Why am I not finding, being a little bit more creative, being a little bit less lazy and finding women owned, women who have the attention of the people that I would like to get in front of and doing deals with them?
because there are a lot of people out there who have the attention. I mean, that's all Facebook and the social platforms are. They're trading in our attention, which is totally, you know, again, it's, this isn't necessarily a value judgment other than the unethical collection of data. But are there other more creative ways that we can do this? And a big, I decided to completely shut down our Facebook groups after I started seeing these really great people that I knew dancing and and pointing on Instagram reels, only women, you know what I mean? And I was like, this is ridiculous. So you've got a group of primarily young guys, programmers who are like, how can we make this super addictive? What are we going to do to, you know, to command people's attention? How are we going to reward our users with whatever scraps of other people's attention we want to throw their way? We're going to create Instagram reels and women are going to dance and point and that's the value, right? And then we're going to ensure that people see their stuff. And I was like, hell no, we're not, I'm, you're never going to see me doing that ever. So that's a bit of a rant, but it's been a long road. (laughs) Yeah, I think that a lot of people are listening going, hell yes, like I agree, but it just, I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. But there's this this play in our minds, like it's working and I should do it and it will grow my business versus I'm not the dance in point. Good God. Like what? Right. But, but yeah. like it's working and you know, you're just like, God, yeah. should I do it? And uh, I've just, we, we just won't, we won't, I won't use Instagram reels. Um, but so thank you for saying that. I appreciate that perspective a lot. <laughs> but it's interesting because I think that we're caught when you really start thinking about it, we're caught in a quandary. Most aware people are, are really caught in a quandary. So if you think about what the social platforms have done to spread misinformation, to spread things like in Myanmar genocide, you know, when you think about the role that social platforms have played, it really, you really start to think about how can I possibly continue investing in these same platforms who are not monitoring themselves. So I'll give you an example. I thought this was fascinating. I remember listening to an interview with, I think her name was Carol Wallotter, whatever her name is. She's a Welsh journalist whose work resulted, you know, revealed and broke the Cambridge Analytica scandal. And what she was talking about is Facebook actually employs the most moderators in Germany, which has very rigid laws around things like hate speech and so on. So there's a whole reckoning, and I don't want to judge anybody here, and that's why I was very transparent. Like we are still doing advertising on Facebook because we are scrambling to figure out what's an alternative that we want, that we feel amazing about that can deliver us attention, you know, in the same way. So we're 100% looking at that, but there is a reckoning that I think all of us really need to do <laughs> to see, is this something, is the power, do we, is this a power that we want to wield? Mm-hmm. Leverage. But it also makes me think like, we as entrepreneurs and business owners need to start getting creative about using our ideas and our voices to reach the people that we've just defaulted and stopped thinking about creative marketing ideas because Facebook is totally. there. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, well, there is no other thing. There is no other way. It's just Facebook. 
And I think we should all stand up and challenge that. Well, yeah. And I mean, that's the point, you know, and it's so fascinating to me because that's the whole point of social media, which is relax, guys. We're just going to deliver it to you. And there's something about that that's lovely. (laughs) You know, there's something about that that's lovely. You don't have to think for yourself, we're going to provide these recommendations, you know, about what to do next. And so there's a lot of amazing benefits, huge benefits to entrepreneurs around that. But the brain is a glorious and lazy organ. Like it loves to be lazy, you know? And so if we give it permission to be lazy, the brain is always going to say, well, it's just, this is just super efficient. Let's just pour some money into this. You can get what you want out of it. Now let's go think about something, you know, now let's go, you know, think about dinner or whatever. So yeah, to me, it's, I find it, Fascinating. I hope we're not, I hope I'm not like being a massive downer for people, but I just think there's this, to me, it's exciting. Like what I think about how else could we, where else could we put our money? And it probably would be better spent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just want to point out another element to this. So I totally agree with everything. I, I can't stand reels. I can't stand TikTok. Like, I think it's ridiculous. Like, I, I mean, from an entertainment standpoint, fine. Like, I have been known to watch like hamster videos on YouTube. Like I can entertain myself. I'm fine. But the the issue that I noticed this year post-COVID around Facebook ads and also in the early part of Black Lives Matter really taking off in the early part of the summer, late spring, is that a lot of businesses like ours turned our ads off um, out, out of a moral or ethical obligation you know, we pronounced like, we're not going to run ads right now. There was a big kind of call to action, especially in the female entrepreneur space to do that out of respect. And yet I, so, so we participated to some degree in turning things off. And yet our competitors, like the bro tech companies amped it up, right? Like it's cheap time, a cheap time to run ads. And so to me, that relationship between power and ethics is really complicated because I also see things that Sandy and I, decisions we've made in our own in our own business that have maybe we've done out of an ethical pronouncement. And yet it has definitely, I think held us back, you know, in comparison to our, our competitor companies that aren't operating with the same kind of code of ethics. And I, so it becomes more, and and then our bigger vision, what we stand for is empowering wellness-based businesses to make a living on the internet. And it's, it's 85% women, our audience. And so like by us not advertising, are we, are, you know, are we really kind of like kicking our larger ethics? Are we really sacrificing that because we're, we're not putting ourselves in front of the people that could use our tool and really change their lives. And so like, to me, it's like such a complicated thing. And when, when sort of like the typical VC backed bro dominated bro built companies aren't operating with these principles like how do we how do we shift the culture without you know harming ourselves or sacrificing this other set of beliefs that we care about yeah i mean it to me it's a totally fascinating conversation and i think it comes because it's also a reflection right of it's a, it's a reflection of of just sort of larger social shifts generally where now it used to be that you would live in a country there would be a prevailing code you know what i mean typically it was it was going to be rooted in some form of broadly accepted religion and people were going to the vast that was going to have people kind of obeying a certain set of rules now we have these freedoms and i think what is so important is that 
the burden of freedom is always that is choice. <laughs> you know, and so we now get to make these choices about how we want to show up, how we're going to run our businesses. What we see so often is that, well, I'm playing by these rules. These people are not playing by the same rules. And so what does it mean to win? You know, and what does that look like? So to me, that's fascinating. I love the idea as a solution. You know, I love the idea of embracing micro economies. Like I can remember speaking with this incredible woman who is a social entrepreneur. So she's in the social enterprise space. And she was talking about how for them, the only way that they could win was by creating one micro economy after another. And that inspired me so much. And that's where I decided, like I made the decision, okay, it's time to start creating micro economies. So rather than thinking about like partnerships to begin creating micro economies with other women entrepreneurs. And to the point that I was making earlier, the only way that this really works is if you are very clear on your niche, you're very clear in your brand position, like you are, you own your stuff. That makes you a good partner. Earlier as an entrepreneur, I would get very frustrated because I would be approached a lot for these part to partner on things. Partnership felt quite murky. It wasn't clear what was happening. In some cases, I felt like it, it just wasn't it wasn't well done. You know, now I look at partnerships as micro economies where you have one queen of a domain and another queen of of a different kind of domain coming together to enrich you know, to enrich the lives and communities of the people that we serve. I think we need to take a look at that in response to some of the complexity that you see, because sometimes when you're doing the right thing, you're also losing out to your competition in a broader sense, which is frustrating. And I don't think, I don't judge anybody, you know, for any of the things that they do necessarily, but I think it's something we all have to wrestle with. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a constant, it's a constant set of ethical dilemmas. I mean, I think that's what it means once you reach a certain level of success in business. Like every day there's a new question that's posed where do I go right or left here? Yeah. And I think that that's not talked about a lot. I mean, I think in particular with with our kind of business where we do run a technology company, there's so much that goes on in tech that isn't questioned. And so every time, like, for example, we say we won't build gamification into the platform because we don't want to hijack attention spans to keep people in there longer than they need to be. And yet- Dude, that is, (laughs) I love that. That's amazing. But we lose people because of that, right? Because the dominant narrative is like, you need gamification to make people want to complete their courses. Yeah. And no, you don't actually. You could just be a really good teacher and then you don't need to give badges out. When I went to graduate school or law school, like I didn't get any badges. There were no badges. Like, <laughs> well, oh my gosh, I love that because here's the thing because then it becomes a question about I love this so much. I love this so much because also gamification is hard, I suspect, initially when you're trying to figure out what it is and then it just becomes kind of easy. It's like cheap attention, you know? But there's this alternate, you know, to me, what's so fascinating about what you're talking about because anybody in any of anything that we sell, the most important thing is that it's consumed. If it's not consumed, people don't get the results. If they don't get the results, you don't get this virtuous circle of referrals and just, you know, the wins and all of that. 
So typically it's been like, what can we do? What are all the ways that we can manipulate people into consuming it? Because most things that you consume do take time. And so you've got to be the best you can. But there's something else where I think it's about creating a culture around that. I'll give you a very quick example. I was doing this webinar recently and in online marketing, as many of your listeners would know, you know, what you're supposed to do is do a webinar, send out multiple, multiple reminders and all that's all cool. And and why do we do that to remind people? But I decided to do something different this time. And what I was doing was sort of making fun. I was saying, look, sign up for the webinar, put it in your own damn calendar. You're not getting a reminder from me. Like take care of it. You know, and so we experiment, and not all of my webinars are like this, but I can't tell you the freedom. And that to me, it was just this line in the sand where I was like, you know what? If they need 50 reminders to come to my damn webinar, they're probably not that interested. They're just not my people, you know, right now, uh, or it's just not that important. So it was interesting. Like I've experimented with both, but the more I, if anything, this year has taught me has continued to reinforce. It is really about setting boundaries inside which you love your business, you love who you are in your business, <laughs> you know, and, and to the degree that you want to continue running it in the way that you're running it. Wow. No, that's so good. I want to have a chance to talk about your upcoming book. And the title is Why Women Don't Want Power and What We Do Want Instead. Yes. Go. Tell us. <laughs> So this is so fascinating. And, and you know what? I'm going against the advice of a lot of people to call it that because I remember my publishers were meeting with buyers and they're saying, oh, they got a few like, oh, I don't like that title at all. I would never pick up that book. And I'm like, well, that's fine. So here's what happened. Here, what had happened was this. So I, for years, I've been coaching women leaders and women entrepreneurs. And what would happen is that in, invariably the number one thing that would happen is we were sort of talking about what's going on and why we're working together and all of this, this idea of confidence would continue coming up. And very often they would say something would be going on. They would say, I, I just come kind of lacking confidence. Now, what was so interesting to me about this is that when you really actually understand what confidence is, it, confidence is truly the willingness to raise your hand and try. It's basically the willingness to bet on yourself. The willingness to do that, and we see that in terms of people who put, they do raise their hand to try the promotion. They do invest in themselves to get that education. They do decide, no, we're going to invest in this technical platform. We're going to get our soulful MBA. These are the acts of people who are betting on themselves. So why were they referring to themselves as lacking confidence? And part of it is sort of the narrative around women of co- and women and confidence and all of that. But what I realized was really happening was actually much more nuanced. It was actually a much more conflicted relationship with power. So I'll give you an example. I remember working with a woman. She was sort of a senior legal counsel inside an organization. She's sitting down at the boardroom table and she's very nervous about speaking up. Not because she didn't have an opportunity, but because she felt very uncomfortable in the spotlight. It was the power that she did have that she felt very conflicted about, not just because she was scared, you know, but because when we look at society in general, society has a very conflicted and ambivalent relationship 
with women and power. So if you look at almost any major woman political leader, Jacinda Ardern, Angela Merkel, Christine Lagarde, any of them, they have in general and invariably been compared to Medusa multiple times. What happened to Medusa? The poor monster with a snake hair was beheaded by Perseus, you know, in order to do whatever the hell it was that he needed to do. But this is how women politicians are characterized. And so I started digging into it even more, really like, why don't women love power? Why don't we want power? Why are we uncomfortable with power? Why are women who are very powerful excoriated publicly and shamed? You know, and, and I mean, you go back to sort of classical antiquity and you'll see like there's a strong correlation between power and voice, right? And so there's there's sort of story after story, artwork after artwork that depicts some historic female figure, you know, from classical antiquity who spoke up, who awful things happened to her. You know, her tongue gets ripped out. She's silenced in some way. So this people are like, whoa, this is a little much. But when you dig into it, you start to see the lineage. It's like this cultural hangover that we continue to have around power. And I think we feel it. As women, there's not, it's a very lonely feeling, very, very lonely feeling. So that became the conversation that I wanted to have. I was tired of, you know, I felt that we, so many of us had graduated beyond women in confidence. We'd also graduated beyond women in leadership. Like we didn't need help being better leaders. It, it had nothing to do with that. We needed to have real conversations about women in power. So to me, it's riveting. Yeah. <laughs> Totally riveting. Yeah, no, yeah. Looking forward to that. When is it coming out? So it's coming out in early 2022. Oh, okay. Yes, we okay. got some time. Yeah, that's great. I love that you're talking about it now. Yeah. Do you want to move into Join Hustle, Jenny? Yeah. So Eleanor, at the end of every episode, we ask our guests to share something that's bringing them joy in their lives right now and a tool that helps them hustle in their business. Hmm. Okay, so what is bringing me endless, endless amounts of joy, glee, just com just complete joy, glee, and it's bliss. Like, whatever it is, I'm already like I'm going there right now. Whatever it is, I'm going to buy it, do it, read it. Oh my god, it's Shit's Creek. Like, hello. <laughs> Oh my gosh, 20 minutes. I remember Schitt's Creek being described as it's, it's like better than the real world. It's funnier and better. And it's this glorious, completely hilarious show. What's so cool is my best friend, one of my best friends from college, she was one of the main writers on the show on the last three seasons. And so I'd hear these like hilarious things normally that David was saying. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's Rupinder. That is straight <laughs> up Rupinder. Anyway, everybody has to check out that show. It just brings incredible so joy it's and blessing. Super joy. Canadian. Jenny, do you know it? Like it just yeah. won a big it's, award. Yeah. You it's know? really fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's like full of Canadian yeah. comics. It's, oh, it's, I love it's, that. I love it's it. one of the best things we have to offer. You yeah, know, I it's just so. amazing. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think I totally agree. I just did not expect you <laughs> to say that. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. All right. And your hustle. My hustle. Okay. Here is my hustle. It is two things that really help me get going. Two tools that I use every single day to really support me. And this has become increasingly, this has never been 
never lost its importance. And it's two things. So number one is to have one income generating conversation every single day. Mm. So this is old school tool, right? It's not like Voxer. One (laughs) income generating tool is conversation. And it's got to be a conversation. Like we are online entrepreneurs, all of us. And it's it's easy to forget how critical these things are. Mm -hmm. And so that's number one. And then the other thing is to do one thing every day to set up another income generating conversation. So early in my business, mm-hmm. this might be a clo- like a sales call, a sales conversation. Now it's much more about partnership. It's much more about platform. It's a different, t- the nature of the conversation has changed. But if people can just do this practice, it has, a, with discipline, it has a transformative impact. And it's super fun too. So you're actually talking about a phone call? Uh, yeah, legit. <laughs> Exactly. I'm like, exactly. What? I know. And, and so can you just give us examples of where you, how you set those up? Like give yeah. us examples of who you're talking to. Yeah. So I'll give you an example. So I am having, and sometimes you're going to have multiple conversations with people. So right now I'm having um, a conversation with a series of conversations with a pretty high profile woman in Europe who has a lar- who's very influential in the women's leadership space over there. So what we're currently setting up are co-promotional deals where like, what is, what does a partnership arrangement look like between us? How do we, how do we pilot something? And then how do we take it beyond the pilot for the rest of the year? Right. And so that would be an example. So whereas initially in my business, it could have been, well, you know, let's have a conversation. I'm going to make this offer to you. Now it's much more like, how can I produce rather than how can I make one offer at a time? How can I set up relationships that allow me to make a hundred or a thousand offers at a time? So that would be an example. To me, it's all about, and you have to be kind of particular about it, I think, you know, like, like so who you talk to, like you have to be, yeah, like you've got to love them. Yeah. You have to love them. But these are the kinds of things that I think I always try to remember that conversations create cash. Even though I'm an online entrepreneur, I do a lot of marketing online. When I stay close to the income producing conversations, that becomes this sort of lens of discipline and keeping things focused on conversations, relationships, and cash, that's very fruitful. Yeah. I mean, that that's what works. I think that that's super helpful advice. So much of what we think we want is a silver bullet or some new tool or some new hack, but really what makes a difference in your business and gives you a meaningful life is deep and honest human communication and connection. So thank you for saying that. I think it's so wise. And I mean, if you want to like, look, if you want to set up the call, then use Voxer because I love to use Voxer, like (laughs) use that, but yeah. Yeah. No, but it's the conversation that matters. Not the, not the, technology. Just don't dance the point. Just don't dance the point. (laughs) Cause or we will not be able to be partners. No, (laughs) no, no, no. I'm on. Yeah. Don't you worry about that. We will not be seeing that. Oh my gosh. Oh, that's so funny. Well, Eleanor, it has been such a pleasure to talk with you. So, so much great advice and insight. I appreciate the time that you've spent with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Ready to go from, I really want to build an online business, but don't know where to start, to, wow, I've just sold my first digital product. That's exactly what we're going to help you do during our free Become an Online Teacher course. 
We've created a simple five-day email-based course to teach you everything you need to get started as an online teacher. By the end of the week, you'll have a digital product that's mapped out, priced, and ready to offer your community. Head over to soulful.mba slash teacher to sign up. It's totally free. 